0: Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If, then, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Phessus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Thanks again, Laura, for reading. Uh, My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, welcome to our church. We are, as you just heard, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, so if you want to turn there in a Bible or phone app you've got, that'd be great, but uh, you don't have to. Uh, We wanted Laura to read this, as we have done throughout this series. uh, We've had readers read longer passages, and then the preacher kind of comes back and highlights uh, what we kind of call mountaintop parts of it, so kind of the peaks or the the most important aspects, and so uh, we'll do that uh, today as well. We're in the final stretch of this book. It's, uh, it'll be a 13-month series when we're done, which is one of our longest ever uh, as a church. It's been a, a lot of fun. Hopefully, it's been fun for you as well, too. And I know I talked to a lot of people throughout this series uh, who just don't read Acts much. It's kind of an odd book in some ways and unique and in some parts kind of hard to get through. So hopefully, it's been uh, edifying and encouraging and gospel-pointing uh, for you in different ways. Uh, But we are in the final stretch where Paul, as I said last week, will make his defense or share his testimony about the gospel, about seeing Jesus himself, about being saved uh, from being a a murderous uh, enemy of God to being now a Christian himself who started many churches throughout Asia Minor and the Roman Empire and now he's back in Jerusalem sharing the gospel with his uh, former brothers, Uh, really he's a Jewish man himself, Paul is a Christian Uh, but now, uh, a Jewish man who's now a Christian, and now he's going to go back and share the gospel with them, uh, not really sure what's going to happen. He wasn't sure what's going to happen. Like, he's pretty sure he's going to die. Kind of becomes clear as he starts to talk about that with his churches, leaving them and so forth, like, this is probably it for me and all that. We know it doesn't happen, but that's what he thinks. Uh, But as we we learn from Paul here, as Paul kind of shares his story, we learn all kinds of beautiful things about the gospel. And so if you're new to Acts, just understand that, that these are, these are histories or stories that point to the greater story. That's a great way to approach the whole Bible, but especially narrative. It's history, it really happened, but there are many kind of microcosms of the greater story. So it's not just history, it's theology. Theology means the study of God or study, the study of things that pertain to God and salvation and so forth. And so the, the Bible is just a beautiful depiction of that. Like it's grounded in truth and history and yet s- symbolically to portray, it kind of speaks beyond itself. Uh, to things that um, aren't immediately apparent in, uh, in the texts. And so remember that as we go, uh, they are kind of a window into another world, a, a world of grace and annihilation of darkness and love and beauty and power. It's really the world of Christ and, and his gospel. So we'll see that yet again uh, today. And so it, this is kind of like week two of three in a bit of a mini series. Last week was Felix when he was talking to these Roman rulers, uh, this governor type about, about what happened. And he's being accused by the Jews here in Jerusalem. This week is Festus, and you learned, you learned or we, we learned, or heard from Agrippa a little bit as well. But it'll actually, next week we'll learn, uh, we'll actually hear his story. We'll hear his testimony before Agrippa next week. And so if you're wondering, we didn't get to hear him, like, actually talk to him, that's for next week. So uh, there's a lot in this passage, though, before we get to that, that he says to, uh, to, um, to Festus, all right? So also one more thing, too, as a bit of an aside. I hope you're seeing this in Acts. It's, it's appropriate to mention now because we're really in these points in the book where we're we're seeing speeches and this is earlier as well too when when sermons took place and speeches and defenses like think of think of Peter in Acts uh, uh, 4 in Acts 2 as well but Acts 4 think of uh, uh, Stephen in Acts 7 Paul in Acts 13 the council in Acts 15 Uh, and now these last three we're seeing these defenses we're seeing these portrayals in history of what happened to this guy and Jesus, it says here, he, he asserts that Jesus is alive. And so what I hope you're seeing in this is that the gospel is on trial here because it's history. And it matters to all, or it should. In other words, Christianity is not private. It's personal in a way because it personally saves us and affects us. But Christianity in the Bible at least is never private. People might try to privatize it and make it their personal kind of pet religion but it's not that. It, it claims to be this global, cosmic, for-everybody thing because it actually happened in the world through a real person who claimed to be God and really died and really rose from the dead. And so it's very personal because it affects us, but it, it's not this private uh, kind of thing. If it, was, if it was a private thing, if it was a private religious experience for Paul, say, none of this would be happening. None of this big trial, all this this pomp, it said, in pomp they came out, None of that would be happening. None of this anger, these riots that, that, are, that are being incited. But Christianity here is on trial because it pertains to historical events that clearly affect all, even those who, who reject them. Jesus lived publicly. He died publicly. He rose publicly. The church was born publicly. And it bothers the proud and saves the sinner. And, and that's why Acts is written in this way. This is not something you see in other religions or in other religious holy books. This type of clear, claiming to be history and claiming to be theology and being brought out into the public square because it deals with objective truth. Not just subjective, that's kind of what I think is maybe true or just some moral teachings here and there or advice for our lives. That's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus came into the world as God's son to save sinners and to raise the dead. That's what it claims anyway. People want have to agree with that, but that's what it claims. This is why Acts reads the way it does. And so much of the Bible reads the way it, it does. This is uh, not a list of moral commands to follow primarily, but instead a story about Jesus and his unmatched grace given to the dead like us. So today, with that said, uh, we are going to look at this passage. You heard it read. Um, I have two main angles. So again, two kind of mountaintops that I want to look at today, um, calling the sermon uh, Paul to Festus, I am Innocent. That's the, the second mountaintop. The first one is when he appeals to Caesar. So just to be forthright, to kind of lay out where I'm going, uh, there's theological importance to the idea that Paul appeals to Caesar, and some things around that. So look at the, the history and theology of that. And then the second piece, Paul declares innocence. That's already come up a lot in Acts. If you've been here, you've seen that. But here, it's a, it's a major theme, so I want to kind of put it my finger on it uh, together and get theology from that as well. All right, so let's start with an appeal to Caesar. Let me read um, verses 9 to 11. Uh, Really, you could kind of subtitle this section, uh, A Window into the World of Appealing to God. So if that kind of helps you understand where I'm going, appealing to Caesar is like a window into the world of a sinner appealing to God. So keep that in your mind as we go. But let me read verses 9 to 11 one more time and we'll go from there. All right, verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal caesar the emperor of rome all right so remember paul went here he went to jerusalem i kind of was talking a little bit about this before but he went to jerusalem to bring a financial gift from gentile christians who were richer wealthier to these poorer jewish christians that was kind of one reason why he's going but he was also compelled by jesus it says to go preach the gospel there knowing he would likely be attacked and arrested and arrested or maybe even worse but then, Jesus appeared to him when he was in prison for that, after that first night of being arrested and, and brought before uh, Felix. That was a couple weeks ago. We looked at that. But in prison, Jesus appears to him and says, take courage. You've testified about me here in Jerusalem. So must you testify in Rome. So that's a big shift there for Paul. He thinks he's probably going to die pretty soon in Jerusalem. But Jesus says, be encouraged. That's not going to happen. You're going to preach about me here, but you're also going to get to Rome because I want my gospel to be preached there as well. And, and just as a little bit of an aside here, the fact that Jesus himself says this and the Bible records this is a huge polemic or argument for the importance of preaching and the importance of word-based ministry and evangelism. That Jesus is like, I, I want you to go and I'm going to cause this into being. I want you to go to Rome and proclaim the gospel. Tell the world at this At the cultural and political center of the globe, go and proclaim the fact that I am alive and that my graces that I bring are for all sinners. Everyone who's distant from God and exiled from him, I will save with open arms. Go and proclaim that. Announce it. The history of it and the theology of it. So, But back to Paul. Paul knew then that somehow, even though it looked like he was going to die in Jerusalem, that God even miraculously might Or, or would enable him to, to get to get to Rome, like we were saying, all right? So, so when Paul appears, to, this is important context, because as, as Paul appeals to Caesar here, he's intending to go to Rome because he knows that's Jesus' will, and yet, remember the context, and, and Laura read this, it's not uh, immediately right here, but this goes back a couple of weeks as well. Remember the context. He appeals to Caesar right after Festus says, and the parenthetical was, in order to do the Jews a favor, do you want to go to Jerusalem, Paul, and be tried there? And so Paul's thinking he knows that the Jews want to ambush him and kill him on the way, and so he appeals to Caesar to literally save his life. Does that make sense? He's saying like, I'm not going to go to Jer- I don't want to go to Jerusalem because I'm going to I'm going to die on the way. They want to ambush me. He knows this. This has come up already. And acts. The Jews are still trying to ambush the guy, and they can't, right? Because like Peter Carlson said a couple of weeks ago, he's like bulletproof at this point because God wants him to live, right? So he, but, but he still says uh, no, then he appeals to Caesar to literally, uh, to literally save his life, all right? Now, here's why I'm recapping this. Here's why this is important theologically. That's the history of it, but this is why it matters to us. This, this is the, the theological angle on on this truth. Paul is appealing to Caesar as he's being accused by these Jews. It actually uses the the phrase they encircled him, right? Or They they came around him and were, were just accusing him of things they couldn't prove, but they were accusing him. Paul appeals to Caesar as that's happening to spare his life. All right? And remember the guiding principle here for reading narrative in the Bible. This is theology... Here's the theology. Is this not our story as Christians? I mean, think about it with the help of Romans 13, which I don't have time to quote here uh, in kind of full context. But in Romans 13, the same Paul who's in, in question here says that earthly kings are pictures of God. Earthly kings, when they do good or when they, when they uh, punish evil and they bring order to a society, they're in those actions pictures of God. So, under the umbrella of that then, that, so this means biblically the Bible's giving us permission, even encouragement, to see Caesar as a picture of God here. And so under the umbrella of, of that then, this is, the point is this is, our, this is a, Christ, a Christian experience. And, um, and not just about conversion, but about being a believer as we're accused, feeling the sentence of death and so forth. And so, as I say here, a couple lines down, but Acts 25 illustrates the Christian story. We too suffer accusations by the devil and maybe people as well we too like paul have felt the sentence of death that we like are marching towards hell and and the more we try to be good to avoid it the worse we become we have felt the threat of sin and we have appealed to the ultimate caesar in a way the one who's better than him god for salvation or for deliverance right this is our story This made me think of Psalm 77 here where it uses similar language, but more than that, it's the same idea. The the psalmist here says, Then I thought, and he's suffering. This is a psalmist who's suffering deeply. And he says, Then I thought this, To this I will appeal. There's that word. To this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Isn't that wonderful? Lethan actually had us up in our home. We love this, this excerpt so much of this psalm. Uh, but, but this is, this is what he saying. There's a lot going on here, but as it relates to Acts 25, when we make our, our appeal, when we make our appeal as ones who have sinned grievously, yet might also feel like we're under the thumb of another's sin or demonic accusation or just... I can't stop this sin. I feel so encircled by it or circumstance. I feel under the thumb of those things. As we appeal in that state, we don't, what this is saying is, and we see this in Paul too, we don't appeal to God on the basis of our mighty deeds, but God's. You see how different that this is from like a kind of a tit-for-tat religious way of thinking? This is not about I'm suffering and I feel oppressed or in danger, so God, let me defend myself before you. This is appealing to God on the basis of what he has done, right? On God's mighty deeds, not ours. Even Paul in Acts, who maintains innocence here, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but even Paul here who maintains innocence, appeals to someone else, not himself, right? Right? This is the theology behind it because he knows he's unable to save himself. This is how Acts 25 just screams the gospel at us. The salvation is not here. It's outside of us. It's, it's out there. It's, it belo- the Bible says salvation belongs to God. It's his possession, which means it's his to dispense to us freely. And he does through his son. He's giving us hope of eternal life through Jesus' bloody death and his resurrection, but it belongs to him, not to us. Paul appealing not to himself, the psalmist not appealing to himself, but to God, and, to, and on the basis of what he has done, his mighty deeds and works. In other words, salvation is what he anchors himself on, not on, again, not on himself. And so, again, it's the same with, the, this is why this matters to us, and it's not just history, but this this is This is daily stuff we deal with. Like, when when we're accused or lied to, like, think about things like this. When you hear the lie in your head as a Christian, speaking to Christians now in the room, when you hear this lie, like, you're such a bad Christian. You know, good Christians don't look at that stuff or say that stuff or do that stuff. You're a terrible Christian. Or the question, are you really saved? Are you sure? Like, I know your pastor says you are, and, and that verse seems to say that's your interpretation, but are you sure you're actually saved from your sins? Or relatedly, are you sure God loves you? Are you sh- I know that that you think he does and someone told you that and this verse kind of seems to indicate that, but are you sure right now that God loves you? What do you do when you hear those lies? Who do you appeal to and on what basis? Or what about when we're overwhelmed by guilt or shame? See, what, what this is all saying is we need to appeal not just to God, but God's works. We don't try to get it together or tap into some kind of non-existent willpower or, again, base our appeal on our good deeds. What, what this is all of this is saying, Old Testament and New Testament, is we appeal to the cross. We appeal to the empty tomb where Jesus died and rose again. And then we say, we stand on, I am loved and saved, and we speak against lies, and if you don't do this, you should do this. When you hear those lies, when you're under the thumb of, of sin, you speak against it and you say, I am loved and saved by what God has done for me. I know it to be true. Look what it says. And I'm standing on the basis of what another person has done for me. Past tense. I mean, if you like to write in your Bible, um, circle that idea. Write that idea in the margin and say, past tense is huge. It's not saying here that um, God will save you in the future implied if you do something. It's saying it's already past tense been done and that you can't change the past, right? See how the past tense is gospel here? It's good news if it was future tense not so much. A, 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 a sandier, less certain foundation to stand on. But past tense is a rock to stand on. So we look back, right, as Christians, backwards in history to Jesus saying on the cross, it is what? Finished. There's nothing else for you to do, Christian. If Jesus said it's done or finished, then stop trying to add to it. It's done. Finished. There's no asterisks by the it is finished statement. Jesus didn't say, in process, when he was dying. Almost done. That's not good theology. That's not biblical. Other religions think that way. But we don't or shouldn't, right? All right. We actually see this gospel in a helpful way, kind of a contrasting way in Matthew 26, um, Contrasting, in a way, to Acts 25. And, and let, me just, let me just read this. This this pertains to Jesus' arrest right when he was in the garden praying and this band of soldiers shows up and they are arresting him. There's this brief exchange that Jesus has with Peter, um, his one of his disciples, because Peter wants to fight him off. If you've read this before, remember that, where he's trying to like, don't worry, Jesus, I'll save you, kind of theology, which is really bad. Uh, that's like, well, whatever, that's another sermon, I guess. But, uh, but don't worry, I've got you. And then Jesus heals the ear of that one guy, remember that? And then, anyway, but this is part of that, part of that exchange, Matthew, Matthew's account. Mat- Matthew says, or Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal, that word, appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And see what is happening? What, what he's doing here? Really simply, what he's saying is Jesus could have appealed to God his Father for help, but he didn't. So that he would suffer. So that, or so that he'd be arrested, then he would be tried unjustly and unfairly. Then he would be crucified and die. And then he would be buried, and then he'd rise again and save us all. Right? But But you see the textbook, this is like, with these two passages in mind, Acts 25 and Matthew 26, which should inform each other. If you don't know this yet about the Bible, we need to use other parts of the Bible to read the present one we're in. Because this is how the Bible reads itself. And so when we use, we bring in a greater wealth of scripture here that uses the same language and the same themes, that's very similar, but also a little bit different in a way we get theology from this, right, that should encourage us and build us up. And and here's the theology. It's substitutionary. We contrast it with Paul in Acts 25. This is basically the gospel that we see. Paul and we in Paul were spared because Jesus wasn't. Do you see how the Bible teaches from both these angles together? Paul appeals to, Paul is spared. He does not die here, though the Jews want to kill him, want to ambush, but they also want a judgment in their favor right here with Festus. Paul is spared. Jesus does not appeal intentionally so that he won't be spared for us. This is what the Bible teaches. This is an extremely important exchange that Jesus has here with Peter. And isn't it amazing that it's recorded in the Bible that Jesus says this to people? I mean, he, he takes a minute before the handcuffs are put on and he kneels down and he says to Peter, I want you to know, Peter, this is the Son of God kneeling down to talk to a human being like like us. And he says, I want you to know I could have appealed for 25,000 angels, legions and legions of angels, to come to my aid. But I want you to know that I didn't. Because he wants Peter and all of us in Peter to know that we're loved. And this is how he calls out to us through Matthew 26. This is how the scriptures are alive and active for us today. This is not just for Peter. This is for all of us. It's like Jesus is reasoning with us right now in this very room, saying something like, See, people of Hiawatha, I could have appealed for the help of 25,000 angels, but I didn't. That's how much I love you. That's how much I, I wanted to go to the cross for you. So cast your anxieties upon me, believe in me, and be saved. These things right here might seem really inconsequential in passing when you read your Bibles, like that seems like an unimportant verse. it might maybe it doesn't, but it might to you I mean I, if you're going to like pick between a passage like this or some of the moral teachings of the Bible or like the Ten Commandments, I would say, I would much rather have you memorize that right there because that gets at the gospel much more than other parts of the Bible does so Look at how God wants to reason and talk this out with us because he wants us to see his intentions and how he could have bypassed all the suffering at many points in his ministry, but he didn't. He was substituted for you and me. He, was, he gave his body over to the cross for, for you and me. Praise be to God. All right, the second angle today is a declaration of innocence. Uh, three, three verses here. Uh, They get at this, I have have not committed any offense. Verse 8, verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. And then in verse 25, Festus says, But I have found that he has done nothing deserving death. So just a few reminders here of how we've seen this thing come up. But also outside of this passage too, his innocence uh, kind of boils up. All right? Now here's a question I think the Bible puts forth for us, in light of all of this, puts forth for us to consider here, uh, at the end of Acts, now we're nearing the end of Paul's story arc. So we have other letters he wrote in the New Testament, but we're kind of nearing the end of the historical story arc of Paul. And so, so I think that the question that this kind of stuff elicits, or the Bible puts forth for us to consider, is this question right here. Is Paul innocent? And I mean that question as broadly as possible, okay, as broadly as possible. Now, it is rhetorical, but what do you think? Is Paul, as you know him, innocent? Now, in one sense, the answer is a definite yes, because he didn't do all the things the Jews are accusing him of here, right? If that wasn't clear, then that's, that's a part of what we're supposed to see here, is that he didn't... There's false accusations and lies and spins on the truth that the Jews are bringing forth to try to get him killed, just like they did for Jesus before him, which is a big correlation piece we'll look at here uh, again in, in a few minutes. Both are innocent in that regard. And yet, at the same time, in another sense, back to this question, when we think more broadly about the book of Acts and about Paul's life, like what we know about him, not too many years before this, he killed people, Christians, tore apart families, and approved of people who were killing people, murdering them. He stood over these murderers uh, and was arrogant over them and hated them. He was an enemy of God. So there's two sides to this, right? I mean, think about it this way. Paul in the Bible says these two things. I am innocent, and I am the worst of sinners. I'm completely innocent, I've done nothing wrong, and I'm the worst sinner out there in in a different context. Isn't that awesome and almost problematic? It actually should seem flat-out contradictory. Without Christ. But here's the thing. In Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us, and because of grace, We can, like Paul, we can say and fully mean both at the exact same time. The gospel affects how we talk about ourselves. The gospel affects how we think about ourselves. And because we can talk and think about ourselves wrongly, there's a hundred ways we can do it wrong, and there's one way we can do it right. And we'll talk about that we're talking about that now, but but there's like one correct, biblically informed way to think about it, and it's messy and odd. The same, these words came out of the same guy's mouth. So, in other words, we can think about ourselves on the sin, the chief of sinners' side, as as a chief of sinners, as wretched to the core, dead, full of lust and pride and hate. Maybe we think of our, about ourselves as quick to judge others for not living up to our standard of righteousness. You know, before Jesus intervened, I was called God's enemy. I was called a child of the devil himself. These are all biblical ideas. Um, even the good I did apart from Christ was wrongly motivated and a stench before God. The Bible talks about how our righteous good deeds smell terrible to God in the Old Testament. You know, so they're, they're, pro- they're improperly motivated outside of Christ and even good things not proceeding from faith are a stench uh, to uh, to him. All right, and yet on the other side of things, on the innocent side, the I've been saved side or the purity side, Jesus saved me. He died for me. So much so, and because it's a hundred percent about His grace being given to us, not about my works. Because of all of that, it's as if. I'm completely innocent before God. Completely. As if I've done nothing wrong ever. Do you guys see this stuff? This is how you think about yourself? Do you apply these things to your mind on a regular basis like Paul is? When you talk about or think about yourself, both sides are important here. In Christ, it's as if I've done nothing wrong ever, even in the face of my present sins. In fact, it's appropriate to even use this phrase. In Christ, we are perfect. In Christ, you guys are spotless, innocent, as if you've done nothing wrong because all of your wrongness has been diverted from you and placed on Jesus. The hands of your sins were laid on Christ and it crushed him, but it bypassed you in the process. This is the gospel. This is the Christian Gospel. This is why we wear crosses. We have crosses up in our buildings. We sing about the cross. It is everything, everything without which we're screwed. King David in the Old Testament also, another example of this. After stealing another man's wife, sleeping with her, even raping her, then murdering her husband so, she, so he could have her to himself, but then later being wrecked by his sin, repenting, turning, crying out to God for deliverance, he writes this psalm, this is a part of the psalm, I was blameless before God. Blameless. Because God is who he is, because his blood, his power to forgive, his word is the last word, he is a savior of all. Even people like me, David's, David's saying, because of that, his power's not impotent. He can even save people like me. He can, he can say this. I was blameless before him. That should be problematic. If you're not offended by that, you're probably not thinking about it right. You should be be bothered by it, even as a Christian. That should kind of bother you a bit. Let it sink in. Is God's saving power so much where this is possible? See, if it's up to you and your works, if Christianity is about what you do, being good, how could you ever, how could we ever, how could you ever erase that, that type of sin? You know, it's like uh, Loki to Black Widow in the first Avengers, you know, saying there's too much red in your ledger. How can you ever erase that? You guys remember that exchange? Have you seen that before? Too much red in your ledger. You can't ever erase what you did. It's sort of like, if it's up to us, totally. Loki's right. The devil's right. But because Jesus said, I'm saving that person. That's my son. That's my daughter. I'm bleeding for them. So justice will be done, but mercy will be shown. Who can say to God, like, what you've done is wrong? Like, who can say that, right? This is the unfair, scandalous grace he shows to people like David and Paul and you and me. But it's beautiful, isn't it? This is how we can have both sides to this. Both sides are, are important. I'm going to talk about this one, in one more angle here a two sided biblical anthropology. Um, I mean, the song we just sang before the, the, the sermon says, When I am at my worst, I'm still of righteous birth. We saw it there too. This is the, the Latin phrase for it is, simil justice et peccator, which just means simultaneously righteous, perfect, spotless, but also sinful. But, but here's the thing without both sides, uh, it, it, Christianity kind of collapses. And so, so think about it. Without the sin side, without seeing ourselves as chief of sinners side, the gospel is just, Christ died for me because I deserved it. Because I'm worth it. Because he wanted to reward me. Even the idea of God being loving there loses teeth because it just means that God only died for good people. That's, what, that's, where we, that's the gospel we get to if we lose the chief of sinners way of understanding anthropologically understanding ourselves in all the human race but without the innocent side without seeing ourselves as completely spotless in christ if we deny that the gospel then is neutered of all of its power and we wallow in our old way of thinking about ourselves and we're depressed and we're unnecessarily distant from god and we're fear filled and we will seek to earn god's favor through good deeds and that's something to see here, too. If, you just, if, we have, if we have a one-sided, not two-sided, balanced biblical approach, but if it's one-sided only, on either side, we just get to works-based righteousness. We just get this idea of trying to do better. Because on the one side, if it's about, whoa, I'm, I'm amazing, then we'll just want to keep being amazing before God, and we won't need Jesus. But if we, on the other side, if, we're, if, we're, if we deny the innocent side, we're crushed by our sin. And the gospel becomes just this like, oh, I guess Jesus' death wasn't enough. So I have to fill in the gaps. So this one-sided anthropology either bolsters us in our good works or it crushes us under our sin. And either way, it leads us away from the cross. Both together, though, lead us to end up with the gospel. The innocent Christ dying for us stained sinners which in turn counts us as completely 100% innocent before God. In fact, that's what Luke wants us to see here through Paul, seeing Paul as a picture of Jesus. He wants us to see that Paul's innocence is a is a a marker of sorts. A, 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 it harkens us back to Christ's innocence through a replaying of, of his trial. In fact, you see things like this a lot. Paul, you know... Uh, In both cases, Paul and Jesus were innocent. I said that before. In both cases, they're falsely accused by Jews. They're bound. They both had Roman leaders confer over them and determine they had done nothing wrong. So think like Festus and Agrippa kind of resemble Pilate and Herod. If if you know of those people, I can't for time's sake go into that, but there's a lot of resemblance between the two. They confer. Even Luke 23 says about Jesus, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That's almost a word-for-word language, verbatim language, there that refers to Paul's experiences in Acts 25. There's supposed to be a, a connection. So here's the last question I want to ask, and I'll say a couple of things here, we'll, we'll end here, but Christ, why then is Christ's innocence important? So if Paul's innocence is meant to remind us of Christ's, well, why is that so so important? There's a long answer to this, but he, here's the short answer: two things. One, so he could be a spotless sacrifice for our sins, we've been talking about this, like the Passover lambs of old, you know, of which the Old Testament says were, they were blemish-free. And two, to show his love for us. And, and that's the part I want you to really hear today, that purity is in one sense an absent, the absence of a stain, but in another sense it's the presence of love. Purity or innocence or perfection is in one sense the absence of a stain, but also the presence of love. So, sort of like we might say about God, God is the absence of darkness, but the presence of light, right? He's not just the absence of darkness, God actually is called light at the same time. And this is why uh, the, the phrase spotless and lamb go together so much in the Bible. Jesus is perfect, he never sinned, but he's perfect as a lamb, meaning sacrificial lamb, meaning perfect as he dies for his enemies to save us and atone for our sin. Paul actually resembles this here a bit in how he chose to go back to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Now, when he does this, is is he going back to preach to his friends? Not at all, right? These are his enemies. They want to kill him. And so Paul is resembling this. He's resembling Christ here in how he didn't have to go back to Jerusalem. This is his choice. He went back to preach the gospel to his enemies as he declares innocence. I think this is a, a whisper of how in Christ especially in Paul kind of but especially in Christ we have innocence looking like dying for enemies the presence of enemy love. And so here's the thing. Perfect people die for their enemies. Perfect pure innocent spotless people die for their enemies. And that should smack us in the face with two truths. One, I'm not perfect because who dies for their enemies? I mean I, I mean die actually die for their enemies. This is very rare if not, like, ever happens, right? I'm not perfect, but two, the Christ is. Jesus Jesus does this, right? And so it's not wrong for us as Christians to, to, to seek to love our enemies. In fact, Jesus teaches this. But at the same time, the almost impossibility of doing that should let, help us lean into Christ all the more so that we realize enemy love does not come from us it comes from, from Christ. It comes from the spotless lamb. He is perfect. He's pure in how he's loved his enemies, not his friends, his enemies. And that's going to spill over into us by his residence within us through the, the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I want you to see here in Acts 25. Um, lots we could say to recap, but I'll just, I want to point us back to him. It's the, the Bible's al, always about him. And I hope you've seen this in this series, in today's passage. Paul's not the hero. Uh, Jesus is the hero. But here's what I want you to see. The definition of enemy love. Christ's innocent, perfect holiness, seen at his trial and in his crucifixion, not appealing to his father so that he might die for his enemies. This is what Acts 25 is all about. Then I would say, appeal to this and appeal to him. He is our advocate and and our redeemer. But remember like Paul, how he appealed to someone who was not himself. As a Christian, this is what we need to do as Christians every single day. Do we appeal to Christ once and then are converted and then start to appeal on the basis of what we have to give God? Or is it a constant appeal to Jesus Christ? And not just the man Christ, but there? These are are the Psalm 77 mighty works of God that we look back to. We we stand on what God did for us there by giving his son for us that we might might live. And so we appeal to him, we appeal to the event, and then we think, this makes me pure. What makes me pure is his purity in me. I think that uh, uh, it was Festus or Agrippa, I forget who it was, but when one of them said to to Paul, or about Paul, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. I think he's speaking beyond himself there a little bit. I think he's unwittingly speaking Christian theology kind of over the situation and for us to see here. In the sense that when we appeal to him, we will go to him. And he will come to us. There's no question if you pray to have your sins forgiven that you won't be. If you appeal to God on the basis of what He's done for you and for me, then we will go to God. We will see His face. We will the exile from Him will be ended. You know, if if Paul's appeal would be bridged to Caesar, would be it's a certainty, Paul, you will see Caesar, how much more can we bank on our appeal to God, not on the basis of our good deeds, but on the basis of his son's spilt blood, which always has the power to save. Versus our works, which never, ever, 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 have the power to save. So consider him, appeal to him. See your purity in him, see your life in him, and uh, and find deliverance, truly find salvation. Wherever you guys are at today, Christian or not, the appeal is the same. Appeal on the basis of of his blood and his mighty works. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this passage. Uh, It is so much going on here. But thank you, Father, for, for the fact that Acts 25 is about appealing to God, about how Christ did not appeal to God, but instead suffered. Though he could have appealed for help, he didn't, so he suffered for us. It is about the innocence that we now have before you, covered by your blood, protected from the elements by the robe of God's saving grace, the elements of demonic accusation, of lies, of bad theology, of sin, all of that and more. And it's also then especially about Christ's purity and innocence, the spotless lamb who became stained for us, the sinless lamb who became sin on the cross. Even though he knew no sin, he became sin. He took on the likeness of, of a snake, of an unclean animal, Darkness swept the land at high noon. The earth shook. The Father turned his face away. Came became, among criminals, a stench. And yet he was the most beautiful, beautiful uh, person. The, he was being the Son of God himself, the most beautiful part of all creation was right there, the light of God becoming dark for those six hours. Father, um, forgive us our sin. Help us to sing to you now in, in mm-hmm. thanks. In your name, amen.